Okay, thank you for joining us everybody. Today we have Jennifer Lal. She started the Center for Bioethics and Culture. She's a filmmaker. She's a former nurse. She's aware of many hats apparently and go ahead and give any further credentials or introductions you'd like. Well, I, I guess I would just like to say I released my 11th documentary film two weeks ago, The Lost Boys Searching for Manhood. And I think we have 58,000 views already of the film. It's free online on YouTube. And just two days ago, my book, The Detransition Diaries, is hot off the press. So I'm now uh, an official author of my own book. I've written chapters in other people's books, and I've edited other people's books. But this is the first mm -hmm. time my colleague and I, Callie Fell, have written our own book. So it's exciting. Film in a book. <laughs> That's a lot to take on all at once. Yeah, it's crazy. Busy. But, you know, I have a lot of energy. So <laughs> Yeah, that's good. You're bringing some really powerful narratives to the forefront that have not really been covered by other people. Um, we've heard a lot from female detransitioners, but the male detransitioners really have been left behind in this discussion, I feel like. Um, and it's yeah. really great that you're bringing forward their stories. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I think it's really fascinating because the first film we made in the trans space was called Transmission, What's the Rush to Reassign Gender? And you always learn when you release a film or probably even a book, you learn things. So you're like, oh, that's a great idea. So when we released the film Transmission, we had included two detransition stories in that documentary film. One was a, a man who presented as a woman and one was a woman who presented as a man and then detransitioned. And the audience reaction to those stories of detransitioners was powerful because I think the general public isn't aware that some, there are many, many people in growing that regret. So then we quickly followed that film with the releasing of the Detransition Diaries, Saving Our Sisters, which, which focused on three young women in the U.S. And that's the genesis of this book, The Detransition Diaries. And when that movie came out, we had all a flood of parents who said, please tell the story of our sons, of our boys. And so we weren't planning to make that film because, um, you know, we just had released the Detransition Diaries like a little over a year ago. It takes you a while to recover from making a film. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, you have to quickly raise the budget again to go make another film. And so we thought, well, okay, there seems to be a need here. Um, and it was clear when we were, you know, in in production and listening to these young men, a lot of the stories are the same between young women and young men. Um, you know, you hear, you know, stories of being on the autistic spectrum of, you know, some kind of a trauma in their life, being bullied, made fun of, not popular, not a cool kid. Uh, clearly, the Internet plays a role in all of these young people's lives. You know, they go online and find themselves in these rabbit holes on Reddit and Instagram. And they, they come into these communities where they're love bombed and, you know, they find their new their new family, their glitter family. But um, clearly in the boys, there's something additional that is going on that we don't see in women. And that's the whole um, feelings around what it means to be a man. You know, young boys are bombarded with messages from, you know, everything from Andrew Tate to Joe Rogan, to so the, the gym bros. And there's the, you know, there's then the 
the rape culture and the toxic masculinity messages and men are the problem, the patriarchy, misogyny. So they have those kind of, and when they're sorting through puberty and, and who they are and who they want to be, you know, they're also hearing these messages. And so a lot of the young boys in film, they go, well, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be, you know, perceived as a rapist or a, a misogynist or something like that. Yeah. So, so sometimes they think, well, maybe I should be a woman or maybe I really am a woman or maybe my life would be easier if I lived as a woman. Yeah. I was just speaking with um, Joe Virgo about this too. And it is really like alarming how these boys are just trying to find a place where they fit. Like they feel like a, what is it? A square peg in a round hole. Like you've got these two extremes and yeah. they just some gentle average guy and they don't have a, a, a place. They don't even yeah. feel secure in approaching women. Um, if they like them, like, can I even tell a girl I like her? Is that allowed? Am I terrible? <laughs> so like encroaching on her boundaries or, you yeah. know, we actually interviewed Joe Burgos in this film that we just released. Oh, wow. And so he was one of, okay. one of the people we interviewed as, because we also interviewed experts. It's an all male cast in the film. Mm -hmm. So we let men, men speak for men and whether they be That's you know, one, one man in the film is a father who has a young son mm -hmm. who thinks he's a woman. Um, you know, we interviewed Dr. Oz Hakim, who's a psychiatrist, who spent his career mm -hmm. in the United Kingdom working with, you know, these types of, um, you know, gender confused people, sex confused. Like, I'm trying to get away yeah. from using gender. <laughs> I've listened yeah. to you, you, you're in black. Um, yeah. but, but, but Joe says some really good things on camera. Unfortunately, when you make a film, a lot of things that are really good that get said don't make it into the film. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But he, I thought one thing he said was really good is that, you know, these young kids when they're, you know, they're going from young children through puberty into adolescence, you know, young adulthood, you know, when they get trapped in this, you know, cult, crazy way of thinking, you know, about biology, they, they put away the tasks of adolescence. You know, and what are the mm. tasks of adolescence? It's finding out what you want to do what you want to study, what kind of work do you want to do, how do you want to grow up and support yourself, and what kind of life do you want to have as an adult. And those are the things that are happening or should be happening in adolescence. You know, you don't yeah. wake up and be 25 and go, oh, what do I want to do for a living? You know, you <laughs> I want to be an investment banker. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Back to school I go. So, so yeah. that was really fun to sit down with Joe and, and get him on camera because he's clearly spent a lot of his clinical practice working with mm -hmm. these predominantly young boys and young girls too, but it's fun. Yeah. It's so important to remember mm -hmm. those, those fundamental things about adolescence and about that transition period for lack of a better term between yeah. childhood and adulthood and all that time in between in the popular culture as a filmmaker, I'm sure you're aware we're inundated with, what it means to be a teen is to be reckless, is to be, um, you know, spontaneous and cool and go on these misadventures and all this stuff. But there's never any thought to like preparation or anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and both of those are necessary parts of adolescence. And I think, and Dr. Hakim speaks to this in the film too, that this, this trans ideology movement, for lack of a better thing to call it, um, is, is a new form of teenage rebellion. 
You know, they used to be, you know, doing all kinds of, you know, tattooing all over yourself or um, yeah. you know, piercings or, you know, there's just always something that teenagers, you know, in the, you know, in the olden days, you know, teenagers smoked, they, you know, snuck mm-hmm. alcohol and smoked, you know, things like that. And then it kind of got, you know, yeah. more everybody has, every new generation has to find their new way to rebel, you know, listening to music that your parents hate. You know? <laughs> um, the sad thing is, is that this rebellious activity has long-term negative health consequences, you know, and things that are irreversible oftentimes. Yeah. I think you just kind of made me realize something like this brings to mind, you know, Orwell and how in the book he describes, you know, the young people were really taking advantage of this opportunity to to use this ideology to really throw it back at the adults and the former authority. And it's a different way of, of rebelling against authority because then they become the authority in this without having any any means of doing so. They don't have to have any experience in anything. They don't have to <laughs> learn anything really. They just have to slap on a label because even with their own labels and their own, oh, this is what asexual means, and this is a demi boy, and this is trans fem, <laughs> and it's like, but then if you challenge them on, oh, okay, so that's pretty rigid, they're like, no, 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 you can actually be anything. Any of those can mean anything for you. It's it's just you know that's how you want to classify yourself. So they don't have to learn anything, and yet they become this ultimate authority that gets to lecture everybody else and really throw it back in their faces, and so. It's like a shortcut, kind of. Yeah, it's bizarre. And, you know, we still live with that. I, I was following this, the Twitter, I can't say Twitter, but the X space with Dr. Ian Copeland and, oh, and you know, Zachary and Colin Wright. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, he, I mean, he, he, he has a PhD. Now people are calling yeah. him the questions the legitimacy of his PhD, but even the experts, you know, sometimes, you know, um, We'll, mm-hmm. we'll try, try to take ground that they have, you know, they're on, they're on sinking sand, but they try to stake their claim. And, <laughs> yeah. but it's a, it's a really upside down world. And, you know, the, yeah. you know, my, my world, I wasn't even planning to get in, involved in this whole issue of trans ideology. Um, even mm-hmm. though my background, I was, you know, a nurse, so I know very well biology and you know, I took as a pediatric nurse, I took care of kids with the, you know, that were born with intersex issues, you know, mm-hmm. rare that they are, you know. Um, but it was, you know, because most of my previous work with the Center for Bioethics and Culture was in the area of assisted reproductive technologies. And that mm-hmm. sort of encroached into the trans stuff when we, when I found out that they were offering, you know, fertility preservation to, you know, minor prepossession, you know, boys and girls. Um, and yeah. then I thought, in my passion in this whole space is, is the science and the medicine. Yeah, you know, it's right. not the cultural critique of, you know, rebellion, teenage rebellion or anything. I mean, those are important issues. But for me, what gets me up and excited to get out of bed in the morning and work in this space is, is kind of what you guys are doing is, you know, speaking to the, the actual facts, you know, the biological yeah. facts. And to me, it's the biological facts coupled with medical ethics. Um, uh-huh. So it's a strange, yeah, you know, definitely. kind of collision. <laughs> and then I get, yeah. you know, I get myself into trouble on platforms because of my stance on surrogacy. <laughs> and, <you know. laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> I met one of your fans the other day. <laughs> that was fun. They're, they seem yeah. really stable and cool. Yeah. Definitely not crazy. It's a mad playground <laughs> out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's really like interesting because... Have you read Lord of the Flies? Yes, yes, I have. <laughs> like, you know, who has the college? Who gets to speak? <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, they've been running with that conch for a while. <laughs> um, but yeah, the the surrogacy, um, I guess anti-surrogacy advocacy that you do really opened my eyes. Like I used to be very pro-surrogacy. I guess because I didn't know. I think so much of this like pro-surrogacy, pro-trans, all of this stuff that touches and like on medical stuff, like these big medical realms, we're just not informed. But no. they market it as this like super easy, like wonderful thing. Um, I was considering doing surrogacy to try and have pregnancy, like treat my endometriosis. And it was, my mom was kind of pushing that on me too. And people were like, yeah, and you can pay off your student loans and this, and, that. <laughs> and so it's, but it's marketed that way towards young women. Mm -hmm. And it's really like not safe. <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's not something you should do lightly. Yeah. Oh. Well, and it's funny because, you know, we're, when you're in a particular lane, like uh, us working in the trans lane, you know, we are very skeptical of the medical profession. We're mm -hmm. very skeptical of their um, expertise. We're very skeptical of their um, ethics. We're very skeptical of their willingness to do things because of profit motives, which is not really what doctors should operate under. You know, doing things because, yeah. oh, I can make a lot of money if I do, you know, double mastectomies on all the little young girls. You know, there was a lot of skepticism around medicine with the COVID vaccines um, and mm -hmm. this rush that you've got to get vaccinated. You've got to, you know, to, to take, you know, to be a good citizen, to, you know, practice mm -hmm. good public health and be concerned about your neighbor and your fellow human beings. Um, so there's all these areas where we're really skeptical. But then in the whole what I call big fertility, big fertility space, mm -hmm. which is very one of the most lucrative fields of medicine, there's like no skepticism. It's just like, oh, mm. babies. Babies. Oh, babies. Oh, babies. Such good parents. Oh, babies. You know? Yeah. So, so it is an, it's an uphill battle because of babies mm. and people by and large, whether they have them or they want them is relevant. But by and large, people usually go, Oh, babies, you know, and there's that kind of cute. Uh, so it's been, a, it's been a challenge. And, you know, I always say like ethically, we have to start our thinking at the beginning, not in the middle. And so big fertility mm -hmm. and big trans too has started in the middle with, you know, these marketing, you know, in big trans is you've got to do it or they're going to kill themselves. You know, right, you, you've course. got, you've got to let them try it because if they change your mind, it's reversible. You know, you know, mm -hmm. it's all that, you know, and then the same with big fertility, you know, they start in the middle. Oh, this desperate couple who, why shouldn't we help them? They'd be great parents, but we have to start mm -hmm. at the middle. I mean, at the beginning and not in the middle with the feelings, the feelings part. <laughs> Yeah. So I'm always trying to walk people back on all these areas where same thing with the, you know, the rollout of the public health COVID, you know, the handling of the, the pandemic. Um, we have to start mm -hmm. at the beginning of what is good, proper public health and what is our yeah. individual role and our collective role in public health. And how do we allow for um, conscientious objectors 
um, in the mm-hmm. you know in the space of vaccination. You know, not for you know um, we're expecting our first grandchild, and I was you know oh, well, pediatric nurse in me was lo- looking at what the state of California requires of newborns to get vaccinated with, and it's insane. You know, newborns yeah. at six months of age in the state of California have to get their first COVID vaccine. Really. If they, if they want to go into any kind of daycare or, you know, or eventually wow. school, like if they want, if you want to kids, your kids in school eventually, you know, they have to have their COVID vaccine and they have to have their booster at 12 crazy. months. I know. And I'm not a vaccine skeptic. I'm not anti-vax, you know, I'm either, but I'm, yeah. but I'm, I'm pro, um, one size does not fit all. Right. You know, yeah. and what one person might need. For their health does not mean everybody has to do it the same way. So, right. Anyway, that's it. <laughs> so, try. I always encourage you to start at the beginning. Start at the beginning yeah. and think about if we do this, like the Chesterton Spence phrase. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to tear something down if you don't know what the consequences are going to be of removing that. Right. You know, there's a lot of times we go in and we just tear something out, and then we go. Oh my God, now it's flooding over here. Because <laughs> we didn't know if we removed that bridge or that wall over here, mm-hmm. it would cause problems over here. And I'm sure because Zachary's background is in architecture, mm-hmm. you know, he understands if you want to build something or move something or change structurally something, you have to understand what's that going to do. Um, yeah. With un- unintended consequences or things that might come up that we're. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And we're definitely not doing that right now. Um, I think a good example of that, something you touched on, was the fertility preservation in these miners. And I remember being at the conference with you and Jamie Reed, the whistleblower from the gender clinic. And I like everyone in the audience, as she was describing these procedures that are performed on children, prepubescent children just looked like they were going to vomit. Like it was so, it felt like something out of a horror movie, like what she was describing. And then the fact that a lot of times these treatments don't even work to preserve the fertility. And I've read that from like subreddits and things about trans kids and how, oh, well now that their fertility treatment that we did was for nothing because we couldn't preserve the sperm or we couldn't preserve the egg after all, It, it didn't work. So no. I don't know if you want to um, yeah, describe and that, actually that a, whole process. Lar- yeah, I gave a larger um, talk on that topic at the GenSpec conference in Denver this past November. And maybe in your show notes you can put a link to that because um, GenSpec has slowly been releasing all the, you know, the mm-hmm. different individual talks from that conference. And Amazing two of my colleagues and I. During that conference. Yeah, two of my colleagues and I have submitted um, a manuscript for publication on fertility preservation as part of gender affirmation care. And, you know, I have been, you know, obviously because of my work in assisted reproductive technology, I have been studying and writing about fertility preservation, fertility issues for years. And, you know, what started out as, again, you know, something that started out as good, you know, there were lives, you know, farmers were using it to preserve their livestock. You know, in case of a, Mm -hmm. you know, a big pandemic that would wipe out all your livestock, you could have sperm and egg of your cattle, you know, or pigs, you know, frozen. Yeah. You know, it it was used, it still is used in, you know, preserving endangered species. 
you know, species that are at mm. risk of going extinct, you know, certain type of animals, so they'll preserve the gametes of those animals in, in hopes of keeping a certain type of, you know, animal not from going extinct. Then it moved into cancer patients, you know, before your chemo and radiation, you know, for women and men, should we freeze and bank your gametes so that your chemo and radiation might not destroy your fertility, we can preserve it. Then it moved into pediatric cancer patients. And so we sort of walk through that history of fertility preservation and then look at going into offering it to, you know, the, the gender affirmation approach. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a highly failed, um, endeavor, um, especially yeah. when you're dealing with children, pediatric populations. And, um, in the medical literature, we found no cases whatsoever of young boys um, having a successful live birth reported. Um, and we had three cases of young girls. And again, these are patients, you know, kids that were sick that had to have some kind of treatment. And we had, we found three cases reported in the medical literature of young girls that were able to go on and conceive and have a, have a live birth. Um, one of the young girls actually had to go through IVF a few times in order to conceive. Um, but that's not a robust success rate. Um, no. and we, and we don't know, we don't know how many pediatric kids that are offered it to preserve their fertility, offered it, choose it. So we have no basis. Three against a million chose it. Three against yeah. three chose it. You know, so there's not a lot of good. And but when you offer this to children in the doctor's office with your parents there, because your parents have to consent, you assume rightly, you should rightly assume if your doctor's offering something to you, that it's beneficial. Right. You know, versus, oh, would you like to freeze and bank your sperm, even though we know you'll probably never be able to have a child using your frozen gametes mm-hmm. <laughs> or your frozen tissue? Because if you're prepubescent, they freeze ovarian tissue or they freeze testicular tissue because there's no gametes that are mature yet to freeze. So, right. And then, to wrap it. Jamie. <laughs> Jamie was talking about how they later will reattach that to your body, but not where it was before, but on a different part of your body so that it can grow and mature and get blood flow to it. And it, and then it still doesn't really seem to work. Oh, it's just, well, because of the young, because of the young boy, um, they, you know, his part of his, his treatment in quotes is to remove his gonads. Mm-hmm. You know, to castrate right. them. So you can't transplant the testicular tissue back in the testes because they're gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to transplant them somewhere and hope that they'll graft on and then, you know, that they'll um, come back to life. So, and then there's a whole area that I, I talked about a bit at the GenSpec conference, which is, you know, people that weren't offered fertility preservation that go on to have cross-sex hormones and surgeries you know, what's available to them, you know, do they go off their testosterone or estrogen and hope that their gametes, if they haven't been removed, you know, magically, you know, return to health and do what, and, and I think that is not, that's not the case. I just posted an article today that I got in my inbox, which is on trans, trans men ovaries or something. It's like, it's like I had whip, whiplash. <laughs> You know, when you see, uh. <laughs> um, you know, but it was, you know, talking about, you know, women who've been taking high dose testosterone and then going off the testosterone and do the ovaries begin to function and produce 
you know, normal follicles that then go on and develop into mature eggs. You know, and this particular study reported that it's not the case, you know, that there's been, yeah. my words, too much damage that's been done that yeah. they're not, they're not restored. Well, we, we have seen how any kind of thought to the baby that would be developing with trans men has gone out the window. Um, any thought to health surrounding fertility has gone out the window when there's a trans identified person in general. Um, it, it's all this um, magical thinking that, oh, well, it's okay if these exogenous hormones damage a fetus because then, you know, who needs to be born normal anyway? That's so weird. Or when we do have things like IVF, one of the drugs you're encouraged to take as a surrogate, a gestational surrogate is um, Lupron. And we've mm -hmm. seen that that can be extremely damaging to women's health with the class action lawsuits and things like that against Lupron. So it's it's just weird. It's like this whole other sector of medicine and healthcare that doesn't care about health. Like, it's really strange. I don't understand it. Mm -hmm. When When I was pregnant, and I'm sure you went through the same thing when you had your children, it was so like, you can't eat this, you can't eat that, you have to make sure you're drinking this much water, and you have to be so careful. I actually ended up in the ER because I was having cramping and bleeding because I wasn't drinking enough water, mm. and I wasn't able to keep food down, so I was constantly dehydrated, and that was pretty late in the pregnancy, so they were like, you know, you have to like force yourself to start drinking, I was losing a ton of weight, yeah. and it was, it was scary because I, there's this like, balance you have to maintain it's so delicate and they're just acting like that's not the case or the situation at all and it's like well some people might have some normal babies and some success that way but clearly like if if we could just throw caution to the wind and go about it however we choose then we wouldn't have these precautions in the first place right like, yeah well so the and question that, is like oh go ahead yeah that that's what really drives, you know, my passion is trying to get medicine back to practicing medicine and not mm -hmm. this service provider. Oh, you want this, you want that, you want your testicle right. removed, you want your breast removed, you know, whatever. I'm here to, I'm just here to fill orders. Um, and, you know, and, and egg donors, because I've done a lot of work with women who donate, and I say donate lightly because they're, they're paid, you know, they're not paid, mm -hmm. donating their eggs, they're selling them. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they take they take loop on it as well. And my, one of my earlier films is called Exploitation, E-G-G-S, Exploitation. And two of the women in that film had massive strokes um, that was directly, I will say, was directly related to their their Lupron um, yeah. uh, dosage that they were given. And the, and the strokes caused them to permanently lose, lose their own fertility. So in their selling their eggs to help somebody else have a baby, these two women will never, ever be able to have their own children because, you know, we know in women, all of our, you know, hormones and stuff are related, are regulated in our brain and their strokes, you know, were in their brain. Ugh. And so they will forever have to take fertility drugs because their stroke, you know, made their brains not produce, you know, the, the hormones that they, you know, for our cycles. And so it's this, there's so much irony. And again, you think, what has happened to medicine? Right. Uh, like, I is it medicine? That was the question I was going to yeah, ask you. Yeah. Like, is it medicine anymore? 
Yeah, I, you know, when I was working in the hospital, before I left nursing, I would just I almost always work at university hospitals, so teaching hospitals. We get the medical mm-hmm. students in every year and the new year, res- the new residents, and they all come through. And then my last couple of years, I would always just kind of quiz the incoming newbies um, and say, you know, what do you, how do you see your role as a physician? You know, do you see yourself as somebody who's providing for, you know, health and well-being? Or do you see yourself as a service provider? And overwhelmingly, they just saw themselves as service providers. You know, I, you know, the patient comes in, they've done their Google research, and they say, doctor, I think I have this. I'd like you to order this test, or, you know. And I thought, well, that's really unfortunate <laughs> um, because yeah. if you don't understand what your role and your obligation is to your, pa- your patient. And in the case of third-party conception, you know, using women as donors for eggs or surrogate, these women aren't patients. So we don't know what normal and good doses are to put a person on Lupron. I mean, on one level, yeah. you could say, okay, if we're going to use Lupron to te- uh, treat precocious puberty, you know, young children that go into puberty like really, really early, say you're five or six and you're going into puberty, and maybe the doc, you know, they, they will already have sort of a standard of care for what dosage, you know. Right. The same with, um, you know, other people, you know, men with end-stage prostate cancer. You know, we kind of know what kind of dosage mm-hmm. we might use on that patient population. But when you have somebody who has no medical need for a drug, you know, what yeah. what's what's the, the dosage? That's a very good point. Yeah, people and, act like, well, you just you just take the drug and it's fine, and everybody just knows. It's like, no, they don't actually. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. it's and pretty it's crazy with, how cavalier. It's the same with the trans stuff. You know, how much yeah. estrogen should we put in a male body? Um, in the detransition diaries, Helena Helena Kirshner, who's one of the young women in that film. She used to be very, very active on Twitter. You know, she basically went into her Planned Parenthood provider and said, I want you to put me on the highest dosage possible. I mean, here's a teenage Mm -hmm. girl telling the medical professionals what dose of estrogen she wants. And she says on on camera, well, I had big breasts and I had big hips, you know, a curvy (laughs) kind of a girl body. So give me the most you can give me. (laughs) They're like, okay. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Crazy. Crazy. It is, especially since, I mean, the people who are going to be the least responsible with this are going to be teenagers. Like, yeah. you know, it's, they don't, they don't know. Like it's adults don't know. Adults don't, you know, we don't have time unless we're in the field to look into this stuff or if it, they take it up as a cause or something. But it's, it's so, um, I don't want to say guarded, but it is kind of kept behind like a lot of information like there's a lot of things you have to understand in order to be able to understand why dosing instructions are the way they are and sex plays a part in that and you have to understand especially when it comes to hormones and things like that how they affect the body and it's like they don't care like they're treating it like it's a b12 supplement or something it's i was talking to um quentin van meter about puberty blockers and um and the the precocious puberty versus puberty blockers given for gender affirming care and he was saying that the reason why puberty blockers are still considered okay although they're still not recommended um 
because even that's like a guess there they guess that you're going to start your period at this point or that you're going to enter this state of puberty at this point based on other factors um the reason they they give them earlier instead of later is because that um calcium draw hasn't started as part of the cascade of of puberty so for whatever reason that doesn't seem to start until later mm. even if you go into precocious puberty and things like that so that's why they don't they don't give those like to the the precocious puberty later and to the trans kids quote unquote like earlier but it, yeah. it's it's yeah. really crazy i don't understand how we got here i i just don't there's no yeah. there's no protocol yeah well i think several factors i mean one is the, the sort of the erosion of medical ethics you know, medicine sort of shifting. And, you know, I'm old enough to remember the early days of a nurse being a nurse where we still had doctors and patients and nurses and respiratory therapists. And when I left, the last hospital I worked with, we were instructed to call our patients or clients. They were our clients, they were our customers. We were service providers. You know, we're providing the service and these are our customers, oh you know. So, and you, you know, you get all those, you know, at hospitals we had customer satisfaction survey. So when you were discharged from the hospital, you were given a, given a survey. How did you like your service? How were, pleased were you? You know, I personally have Kaiser as my healthcare. I just saw my doctor last week. Within 24 hours, I had an online email. How was your service? How were, how were you greeted? You know, did you feel like they listened to you? You know, it was just, so it's, yeah. it, it's come, you know, it's almost like rating your hotel. Did you like the pillows? You know, was the, sur- was the room comfortable? <laughs> Yeah, so, well, I, I also went to Kaiser. I remember things like that. Yeah. So. And I think, you know, if you follow the work of like James Lindsay and the whole, you know, whole critical race theory and the queer theory and sort of the, the breakdown of, of, of structures that we, we understood, we understood what a man was, we understood what a female was, we, and we, you know, we had all these, you know, shared understandings. And then, you know, mm-hmm. Career theory came in and just blurred everything. You know, like you were saying earlier, yeah. we have fluidity and demi this, and you know, it's just like, <laughs> yeah. um, and, but they and don't I mean think, anything, you know, so it doesn't even matter. <laughs> and we're a very, um, we like money in this, the United States. So if there's money to be yeah. made, you know, we'll throw ethics out the window. And we'll we'll throw facts out the window. And mm-hmm. I do think that there is a strong agenda from these ideologues, you know, WPATH and, um, you know, the HRC, big groups like that, that, you know, ACLU, I mean, they were fine just fighting for gay marriage. And then once they got gay marriage, they thought, well, we need a new cause. You know, we're not right. going to close up shot and say, well, we got gay marriage. We can soon go home now. It's like, no, we need another, you know. And then yeah. the, the rainbow flag became the how many iterations of flags that we have now. So I think it's all these things that are kind of in a perfect storm. Yeah. But well, I think the happy ending crazy. is the happy ending I think is what I think this trans I think we will see this one, you know, in I won't say in how long, but you know, in a reasonable period of time. It won't be like fifty years from now. I'm thinking of maybe five years from now, maybe even sooner. Mm-hmm. Because I think what we'll see happen is what we're already seeing happen and it happened in the United Kingdom. It's whistleblowers and it's lawsuits. Um, And that often gets the attention. And then a lot of the red states have passed laws that are protecting children and 
I saw yeah. something just today that Florida's not even going to allow you to identify as a different sex that you were your natal sex yeah. on your driver's yeah, license. Driver's license. You know, yeah. you can say you're this, but your driver's license is going to say your your natal sex. So. Right, and I've I've had that argument with people before, um, because I I know a few trans-identified people. Less so now that they've gotten angry with me for various things <laughs> as my stances have changed. But um, they, we've gotten into arguments, and I, I can argue with somebody about something that I'm very passionate about and still be friends with them and still be civil and everything. Um, and I, I don't know if they, if their feelings about me changed, but mine haven't changed about them. I still think they're lovely. But uh, we've gotten into arguments about their documentation and things like that. And, um, it's like, well, you, you're asking for the special privilege for you, but then you don't want to give it to people who you think are, you know, not like you. And it's very yeah. subjective and we can't do things like that. Like as a society, it's just not tenable. So, mm -hmm. and then the argument is, oh, well, if you pass well enough, you can stealth and get into spaces and things like that and it's like well if you pass well enough and you're not going to get caught then it really doesn't make a huge difference to you does it like mm -hmm. at that point mm -hmm. so it's just this tricky like gray area and it, i mean i personally am not for the document changes i think we should just keep those for everybody's safety even the people who are trans identified because as i've been finding out if you go into the hospital or the emergency room and you don't disclose your sex because you're unconscious or or what have you, and they start performing on you based on the sex they think you are, mm -hmm. then it could lead to deadly consequences. So yeah. I, it's, yeah, just not safe for anybody. I mean, I spent years in emergency rooms and, you know, patients roll in all the time. They're brought, they're picked up in an accident, a scene of a mm -hmm. car crash or whatever. They come into the emergency room. They're intoxicated. They're in a, unconscious, whatever. And if you don't immediately know what their sex is, you might not be looking for the right things. Right. You might say, oh, this is a man and it's a, it's a woman that's got an atopic pregnancy. You know, exactly. yeah. <laughs> but you're, you're going, well, this is a man with abdominal pain. Let's see if he's got, you know, gallstones or an appendicitis or something. You know, it's just, right. you, you have to have the, the reality of the patient in front of you so that you can start looking. Cause there's things, believe it or not, that only women have or only men have. Um, right. and even if there's or the even same kidney thing, values. Yeah. 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 So and it's, that can it's, be. Like kidney values, I don't think people realize how integral those are to your health. Like, if your kidneys yeah. aren't functioning properly, you're not having a good time. So, yeah. yeah. But if medicine is just going to be service pro providers, you know, giving services, right. you know, then I go, okay, well, we'll just chuck that out the window. But if we're going to be people that are concerned with life and death issues and proper treatments so we can deal with, you know, whatever the underlying disease or illness is, then we have to have, you know, the facts. Right. It's almost like it's a separate branch of, I don't even want to call it medicine, but some kind of extreme service or something, body modification service, because, you know, there's that aspect where if you have a certain identification, you get whatever you want on demand. 
all the ethics go out the window, you're pregnant, whatever, it doesn't matter what you want matters. And we don't care about the baby. We don't care about this. As long as you, you get your trans joy. But <laughs> on the flip side, I have a friend who got a little bit of um, viral fame on the internet because she had really terrible endometriosis to where she was passing mm -hmm. out it was she could not have any kind of quality of life because of constant blood loss and things like that and so she really wanted to get a hysterectomy to stop that because she's a lesbian she'd never want to get pregnant she was in her 30s like she was like nope i'm sure and yeah. so they kept refusing and refusing and refusing to give her this hysterectomy and eventually she just told them you know what i'm trans i want my hysterectomy and they gave it to her immediately wow wow so, which then it kind of like caught her off guard because they didn't remove the ovaries, but they just removed the uterus. So later she ended up having another major health incident and had to get the ovaries removed as well. Um, um, so it was, um, it was just crazy. She's doing a lot better now, but it was yeah. <laughs> like the fact that, that she had really, to do that. Yeah, that is really crazy. And it's sad to hear those kind of stories to me because... Um, on one hand, you know, the endometriosis is a surgical, is a, is a medical need. Um, but, mm -hmm. you know, just I want my uterus out because I'm a man. You know, it's, that's not a medical need. Right. And, and right. I, I'm one of those that's against medicine doing this for adults. I mean, I know in this debate, we, we peacefully live amongst others that say, okay, for adults, you're okay. You can do whatever you want. But to me, I say that's not the role of proper medicine. You know, if you want to go right. tattoo your body, head to toe, go to the tattoo parlor. You know, if you want to get Botox yeah. and fillers and feminize or not, you know, go to the med spa. You know, go, mm -hmm. you know, go to the laser hair removal clinic to have your body hair removed if you want to, you know, look more soft and, and feminine. Um, yeah. But as far as chopping off, cutting off, you know, healthy breasts or healthy genitalia, you know, those are those are integral body parts that, you know, system, body systems. We're a system. Yeah. You know, we're not just an arm, we're not just a leg, you know, we're, we're not just a heart, we're a system and, and they right. play important I mean, roles in our, our development, even as you get older. Yeah. That's where we are now though, is I've seen the ethical question played around with in some articles of, you know, is it okay to amputate some legs if somebody just doesn't want them anymore? They think, you know, they'd be better off or happier without them or the woman who blinded herself with bleach to identify as blind because she's so mm. like desperately. And it's like that woman is in desperate need of mental health care. Like mm. that's not something we should be fostering. And then you get the libertarian crowd in there, quote unquote mm -hmm. libertarian. Um, <laughs> that's like bodily autonomy. Once you're 18, go for it. And it's like, aren't you the same party that was kind of low key um, advocating for child labor? <laughs> like, <so>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you get that a lot in the you want to be a surrogate you want to sell your eggs you know but it's your body yeah. you can do whatever you want and i go okay fine i can get the it's your body you can do whatever you want with it mm -hmm. however medicine is not going to help you do whatever you want with it because it's not yeah. their their job their professional duty to do that for you um like That's i say go to the med spa if you want to pay somebody to put silicone pump your lips up fat or, you know, do uh -huh. whatever, you know, body hair yeah. removal. But, you know, I, I, I draw a pretty firm, you know, ethics is about drawing lines and the brighter the lines are, the clearer 
clearer the boundary is. And to me, that's a really bright line. And and I'm with yeah. you that people that really feel like I should really be taller, you know, you can put extensions in legs, you know, mm-hmm. cut the bones and put bones so you can, I, w- I really want to be six, seven so I can play you know, basketball. Yeah. That's, that's not the purview of medicine. Yeah, no, it, I really think it's just something else. It's not medicine at that point. And clearly the medical profession agrees or they would have just given my friend, for example, the hysterectomy for her endometriosis. But clearly there were some ethical issues with that. And they wanted to make sure that her fertility was preserved because they knew that that could be a concern up ahead and all of these different mm-hmm. things. And they were being really cautious and safeguarding in that regard, even though like her health was, you know, kind of questionable as to which option was better. But they were going erring on the side of maintaining what was there and trying to preserve that as much as possible. And I understand that outlook. Um, but yeah, it, and it also calls into question what is mental health and at what point is someone able to consent? Because mm-hmm. if you're wanting to cut off your limbs or blind yourself or whatever, you're clearly not mentally well. And I don't think that that should allow you to consent to something like that. So Yeah. And, you know, when you look at some yeah. of the studies and surveys of, especially in the space of, you know, young teens, young children, there's a lot of comorbidities that these children have, whether it be trauma, you know, abuse, bullying, autism, pornography use, mm-hmm. you know, trauma in the home, trauma at school. You know, there's so many things yeah. you can't tease out. And I even I even push back on the narrative to leave these kids alone because most of them will just grow up to be gay. Well, we don't know that, mm-hmm. you know, because That's there's true. so many yeah. there's so many comorbidities. We need we need to do a study and we need to like have a, right. a control group and then we'd have to let you know some kids grow up and some kids you know get trans. But you know, I don't like yeah. using children as human experiments to figure that out. Right. Because I, like I just always say against that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they may be children that grow up to be same sex attracted to be gay, or they may not, or they may be kids that grow up to have ongoing mental health problems as they have now right. that, you know, will constantly need counseling and, and, and therapy or, you know, or, or to get through trauma or abuse that they've had in their past. Um, or they may just grow out of it and just be, you know, quirky little people that are yeah just don't yeah. fall into to stereotypical you know male female whatever those even are we don't let kids have that freedom anymore you know we're, we're no. so pro- we're so progressive but the trans <laughs> movement just wants to say okay if you're not this kind of a boy then you're a girl you know if you're not yeah. this kind of a girl then you're a boy you know it's like well no yeah, i can be yeah. a tomboy girl <laughs> Yeah, I love looking at history, like historical figures, like women who helped shape the West or women during the Dust Bowl or women from other countries that, you know, gathered everybody together and like led a charge for rights or something, because they're usually women that were very atypical and just kind of did everything and wore pants and didn't care. And like, and it's great. Yeah. And it's great to see that. And then conversely, we have men that didn't fit stereotypes either, like Houdini and, oh my gosh, I can't remember the name of this illusionist, um, but he's another illusionist. And there's like some big treasure thing associated with him. Um, Um, And so, yeah, just these like quirky 
weird people that just didn't fit the mold and they just made their own way. And that's so cool. Those are great stories to show kids. And we aren't showing them that. Instead, we've got these art images of like with all the cutting scars and everything and the the mastectomy scars like oh trans is beautiful it's like it looks like a sacrificial death cult or like the that one (laughs) image in the uk of that poor girl that had all those cuts all the way up both arms and and you know oh this is trans joy and you know oh he's himself and it's this poor young woman that obviously had a lot of trauma and things going on in her life and it's like no like we need to really foster what makes these kids unique like without throwing labels at them left and right yeah i really want to get back to that place that'd be great yeah (laughs) i know i know amazing (laughs) amazing frontier when my i have a picture of my grandmother who taught first grade for like forever and she was unique <laughs> at, a t- at a time when women didn't divorce as a young mother of two sons. She divorced. So she was a single mom, you know, uh, in the 30s and 40s, which is pretty much unheard of. And I have this wow. cool picture of her, black and white picture of her in front of her one room schoolhouse where she taught. And it was clear that you know, she had like 50 kids in this picture. And they were from like little tiny kids to, you know, teenagers. <laughs> I mean, it was, she, you know, she taught all the children. Many of them didn't have shoes on, you know, they were, it was clearly a very, you know, a rural West Virginia one room schoolhouse. And I think, what a badass woman my grandmother was. (laughs) Yeah. I have some of my great grandmother, um, from Cuba and like, and one of them, she's younger and she had a pretty like progressive husband that just kind of like let her do what she wanted. And so she's got this one photo where it's her and these two pistols, like six shooters on her hips. And then <laughs> I've got another one of her from like the early 80s. It's her and my other great grandmother. And they both got these huge machetes over uh, <laughs> like chopping down trees no. on my grandfather's property. And it's, it's like, yeah, let's get back to that. Like, <laughs> Well, it's funny because, you know, one of the things that Joe Burgo said when we were interviewing him, and sadly, again, it didn't make it into the film, but he, you know, kind of said, you know, when I'm working with parents, you know, some of the advice I give them is if you can, take your children and leave the country, you know, just remove them from the environment. And you see this as huge, like in the U.S., maybe elsewhere, this homestead movement. You know, where mm-hmm. people are, you know, yeah. moving like off the grid and they've got their generators and they're going to West Virginia where they can buy acres and land and they're farming. And, and part of that, mm-hmm. I think, came about the pandemic when a lot of people had more freedom to work from home. And, yeah. you know, they just they wanted to feel like they had more control over, you know, what they could and couldn't mm-hmm. do, and, you know. But, you know, there is a sort of a longing for for that, you know, those kind of role models for children, you know, the, the rugged early American that were coming across the country in wagon wheels and, you know, yeah. dragging their it's, little children behind. <laughs> yeah, it was the the great thing about American history is that kind of forging your own path in, in more than one way, like not just a physical path, but also the path of your life. Like you can just yeah. make of yourself anything 
you don't have to conform to anybody's stupid labels and standards <laughs> or anything. Yeah. So long as you're not hurting anybody, but like, you know. Yeah. yeah. And that's a little bit what the trans movement is. You know, like I can forge my own identity, I can do all these great and wonderful mm-hmm. things. But I again I say, but however, you're doing things that are have lifelong negative health complications. Yeah. Sure, the early pioneers knew that they were risking their life, but their life was risked for the hope of a better future, you know, for their family mm-hmm. or to build a new town or build a new community or whatnot. And these right. children are in their confusion and thinking that this is like forging my identity. Yeah. And it's that shortcut again. It's like, all I got to do is slap on some labels and I'm good. It's everything. Chop better, off my you know? breast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, but it's, it's interesting because I am seeing more of a shift with the younger people that um, are relatives or friends of the family. And basically as, as more people know what we've been doing, more people have been like, Hey, so can you talk to my, you know, son or daughter or whatever? <laughs> and so then um, what I'm seeing more of now is just the label for the sake of the label. And then, so they can say that they're trans. And so I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, so that's getting better. At least they're realizing the, the, so even in the culture with the young people, it seems like we're already starting to roll back the, let's go straight for medicalizing. Let's go straight for this and that. That's a little extreme. So I'm hoping <laughs> that we will no. see more of that and, and it will just kind of be more of like an alternative. I'm just going to dye my hair. thing again. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'll just rebel against my parents by getting purple hair and a couple extra piercings or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, that's how I, like I said, I do think that we will see this, this, uh, rolled back in, in not too distant too. future. I'm not going to take that and bet on it and go to the, you know, <laughs> the slot machines yeah. and bet on that, but, but that is my prediction. And I think it's only because, you know, you can only sustain something that's so, permanently harmful to your health for so long i mean it's like smoking you know in the olden days everybody was like oh smoking doesn't cause any damage smoking the smoke 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 and and slowly but surely we realized you know smoking is really not good and then you know we had this huge campaign to stop smoking don't smoke the New York Times broke those stories back then about how damaging smoking was to your health and stuff like that. And it totally crippled the ad industry around cigarettes. So, yeah. And so, tobacco yeah. wasn't too happy either. And it's the same with yeah. big trans. You know, they don't want to hear, you know, that's why they say all the detransition stories that those are rare. Those people weren't trans anyway, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, no, but the, the evidence is mounting and soon enough. Yeah. Um, They're just like, holding you know, back the door, like it's fine. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And once people but, realize, people are waking up. I mean, they're hearing podcasts yeah. like yours and Benjamin Voices and all the people out there that are talking about this. And uh, well, and thanks watch. to films like yours that are shedding light on all these things, and that's yeah. such a valuable contribution. Like, well, thank you, know you so really much cool. for producing all those. Because when you post your um, your films online, you get a lot of data, which is great. And we hired a, a digital a social media company to run a campaign on the film. So we get, you know, pretty good analytics because we're running targeted ads. And the the number oh, wow. one top 
top demographic that's watching the film because if, there's a trailer and then we pulled out six or seven short little clips and have all these different mm-hmm. you know pieces of the the film that are being teased out with paid ad revenue um and it's it's the the young demographic that's the you know the 20s early 30s that are the top watchers of the film which is wow. great because that's who we made it for yeah. You know, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't, secondary markets are, yes, we made it for parents, you know, secondary markets, yeah. yes, we made it for educators, lawmakers, you know, those are secondary markets. Our primary art, uh, you know, audience that we wanted to watch this film was young people because they're, they're either, That's great. this is their personal struggle or their friend's struggle or, you know, yeah. or they are just aware of it for their, you know, their friend, friend group. So we're happy to see yeah. that that's. I mean, other people are watching it too, but that's the top demographic for watching. That's the great film. to hear. Like parents really are watching. Doctor Joe Burgo is grabbing the parents' attention because parents want to know <laughs> what do the experts say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. but the young people want to know what do the young boys say that did this. I want to yeah. hear from yeah. my peers. So, which yeah. makes sense. Yeah, it does. But thank you so much for coming on today and for Ooh. talking with us and sharing so much about your experience. Yeah, I we enjoyed meeting you guys in person. Again. I love yes, meeting you guys in person. Awesome. So that was fun. It's always fun to meet yes. people in person. Well, thank Definitely. you for having me. Yes. Okay. I'm going to stop this uh, recording.